Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 1st, 2022, a Tuesday, and on this rather Dismal Tuesday. One war, of course, is on our mind. The war in the Ukraine. The uh, the Russians now seem to be attacking civilians in Kharkiv and in uh, in in in, um, uh, in Kiev. Uh, the New York Times headline, uh, Wall Street Journal headline, is a is a similar, very dark narrative about what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, but of course. Whilst this war is going on, there's another war which hopefully is winding down, our war against the coronavirus. We've done so many shows about this. I'm always showing these maps from the New York Times, the graphs of the ups and downs of COVID. At the moment, it's dramatically down, and that's partially because of um, the number of vaccinations, although not enough vaccinations have, uh, have been made. But nonetheless, the war against COVID seems to be going in the right way. We've reported on COVID over the last couple of years since the show went daily in all sorts of ways, including one with a very brave doctor, Dr. Uche Blackstock, uh, who was fighting the war quite literally on the front lines. And we gave that the headline. She was turning up every day to save people's lives. Uh, And I'm thrilled today that there's a new book out about the war against COVID uh, written by uh, a St. Louis-based journalist, Kathy Gilsonen, called The Helpers, Profiles from the Front Lines of the Pandemic. And Kathy is joining us from the great city of St. Louis in Missouri. Kathy, is this metaphor of a war appropriate, do you think, or is it cheapening that word? Well... I think it's appropriate. I mean, I think that it was that that we it's a different kind of war. I think um, you know, I spent I spent a long time in DC covering national security and politics. We do like to use the word war for difficult things. Uh, you know, war on drugs, war on poverty, war on it, it has become there are things that cheapen the word, but I think in terms of basically the the danger uh, to human beings that that the coronavirus caused the novel coronavirus in the United States and around the world, in terms of the death toll, in terms of really the full scale societal mobilization that we saw, especially early on in 2020, in order to meet this crisis, um, I, I think that the the metaphor is apt. Uh, you uh, the book is out today. Congratulations, March Thank one, you. and your pin tweet on your Twitter page is. Today, this book is real, and I hope these profiles encouraged during the pandemic will bring hope and courage to others. We all need it. Um, This is a book that profiles ordinary people in their fight against the the COVID pandemic. Who did you pick out? How did you choose the eight characters who dominate the book? They come from what, what I really wanted to do with the book. I wanted to do many things with the book and hopefully I managed to do some of them. Um, I, I wanted to reflect really uh, people that were working to fix the many, many different things about our lives in the United States that the pandemic broke. So this was of course, 
you know, the medical community was hugely implicated in this. Um, and so, you know, I, I profiled a paramedic who drove across the country in an ambulance from Colorado to join this extraordinary aid effort in New York at a time when when their paramedics were overwhelmed. Um, you know, I profiled a nurse in the Bronx. It was during April 2020, the hardest hit borough and the hardest hit city in the United States. But also, I profiled people who were trying to deal with the the economic and educational effects of this virus. So there was a woman in in Louisville, Kentucky, Nakia Rhodes, um, who was a chef and an educator. She was teaching, she is currently now, teaching culinary arts at a public school in Louisville, Kentucky, at a moment when, you know, the, the city's gripped with protests from, from the police shooting of Breonna Taylor. And she has to, you know, jobs in the hospitality industry, just so many of them, millions of jobs just disappeared overnight in the shutdowns. And Nakia Rhodes took that moment to decide to try and help feed and heal her community at a time when, you know, it was it was riven with these economic impacts and and also the the effects of of protests and police shootings and crime and so you know the the pandemic hit so many of us in so many big ways and and nobody was untouched by it but i wanted to capture people who looked this just impossible terrible moment in the eye realized they were not going to be able to save everybody they were not going to be able to feed everybody they were not going to be able to to comfort all the lonely um and they just they tried anyway they tried to do the best that they could uh the twitter the tweet you you wrote um says we all need this hope and courage uh why do you think we need it i personally need it um I, so but you say the rest of us do as well. I'm not saying we don't, <laughs> yeah. but I'm curious why. What the purpose of these kind of stories? Are they designed to inspire, to make us cry, to make us feel guilty, to make us less selfish? Uh, they're definitely not designed to make anybody feel guilty, but I do think they are designed to... Um, they're designed to show the resilience of the human spirit, even in the most dire of circumstances. Um, there, you know, this, it's, it's kind of a cliche. Well, maybe it's not a cliche anymore. Back, back in early 2020, everybody was, was invoking Camus' book, The Plague. Of yeah. Course. And in fact, it's funny, you know, I, you know, I've got this feature on the show, um, uh, where at the end of the show, the Lit Hub show, I, I asked people for a reading suggestion. I always had one rule that they, at the beginning of COVID, that they weren't allowed to mention Camus' plague because everyone was. And then whenever I forget to tell anyone, they would always bring up the plague. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I let you down, man. Um, I, I'm not going to... No, no, no. You haven't brought it up. You, you're fine because you just you brought it up in reference rather than your book at the end. So I, I okay, let you good. off, Kathy. Okay, good, good. Well, I think what's one of the things that that I found to be very interesting and inspiring about that book and about Camus in general, actually, um, he has a very modest view of human nature um, and and what humans are capable of. But he also, to to spoil the end of the book, he he concludes with with not like some sweeping lesson about how people are and what people are like. But he concludes that there's more to admire in men than to despise. Um, and and he and his heroes, 
you know, they, they fail a lot, um, but, the, but they go forward with the determination that, quote, a fight must be put up one way or another, and we human beings do not bow down to pestilences. Um, and so I think that these characters sort of reflect that spirit, and I think we all, um, we all experience hopelessness. We all experience times when the odds are completely stacked against us. Um, and, and I think that, again, these, these are the kind of people who, who look the odds in the eye and try anyway. They know they might fail and they know well, that's that they a very, um, existential way of looking at things. I mean, Camus plague, of course, was not really about a pandemic. It was about fascism. Your book is not about fascism, although you're a political writer, it's about the struggle against COVID. Um, we did a number of shows on the crisis in the medical community on this. We had Eric Topol on the show, and we've had so many people who have argued that COVID revealed the structural crisis of the American medical system. Isn't that a an architectural or a structural issue that goes beyond individual heroism? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. And I think that the, and, and actually, I th and I make the point in the book, I think it as as much as I wanted the book to be a hopeful set of stories about American resilience and um, and human resilience, but it takes place in America and features Americans, but human resilience um, and courage under fire and and all of that. I think that the I think it's an indictment of um, institutions that failed these people because because they shouldn't have necessarily had to display courage to this degree in the first place. You know, they shouldn't have, they shouldn't have had to scrounge for personal protective equipment. They shouldn't have had, you know, they shouldn't have been dealing with, yes, it was a crisis, but, uh, you know, a nursing shortage in the United States, this has been ongoing for decades. Nurses were lobbying Governor Cuomo about this back in 1989 when it was Governor Mario Cuomo in New York, you know, there, these are things that there, there are many things that were very unpredictable about the pandemic, but there were resiliences that we did not build into the system um, that we had ample opportunity and ample warning to do. So I don't think the, the argument of the book is not that, you know, individual heroism is going to make up in, you know, is going to make up for systemic institutional political failures that are real. Um, it is to say that these individuals are all the more worthy of celebration uh, be because they didn't have that backup. Um, and they, and again, they did the best that they could. Like the, the heroes in Camus' plague, uh, the book, The Helpers, Profiles from the Frontline of the Pandemic is about eight. It's a profile of eight individuals who worked to fight, um, to fight COVID. Um, the book is, of course, really about memory. It's memorializing these characters uh, so that they'll never be forgotten. But if America is a world leader in anything, it's in forgetting. We've done lots of shows on that, too. We had the wonderful essayist Colette Brooks uh, on the show. She's an essayist on how America tend to misremember their past. They're not alone, but Americans are particularly good at that. Um, it seems to me as if COVID's already a distant memory for many people. Do you think we're going to remember anything about it in five years? Oh, yeah, I do. Don't, I mean, do you think you personally are going to remember anything about it? Well, personally, I was lucky. I wasn't really in any way affected. I'll remember it as an interviewer and as a writer. Yeah. 
But things move so fast in America and in social media and in digital news that I wonder, you know, in a couple of Ukraine's time, shall we say, mm-hmm. COVID really will be in the rearview mirror, whether people will remember it. And, and again, I think that's the value of a book like yours that remind people that it was real. And particularly how it gets politicized, both on the left and the right. I think that, so it's interesting, there's just, and I've just been looking at polls about this, the the majority of Americans um, actually still, and there was just a new poll out about this today in the Washington Post, the majority of Americans still think the pandemic is not done and still actually even support some kinds of restrictive public health policies. And I mean, it's interesting you mentioned politicization which has absolutely happened, and and, and right, I and this and this sort of confusion of conspiracy virus yeah. and February sixth and Trump and COVID. You've written a lot about this, so we we live in a sort of a pandemic culture, both politically and scientifically. Yes, um, I think I, I do think the pandemic will be remembered. I, I I mean, two two different points on that. I think the pandemic will be remembered. It was a huge, you know, this is this is the biggest. Thing. I'm only 38, but this is the biggest thing to ever happen in my lifetime. You know, uh, and and I was I was a senior in high school when September 11th happened. You know, this was a real world cataclysm. I think people will try to get on with their lives, um, which I think is generally a healthy thing. And I think bad things will continue to happen, which I don't think is generally a healthy thing. But as far as memory getting codified into real institutional change or good policies, even public health resilience, supply chain resilience, dealing with the nursing shortages, dealing with these people that remember we used to call essential workers and we're back to, <laughs> you know, like I, it, it was very- Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, but this comes back to my point. Um, it comes back to my concern is we had a period where they were treated as heroes. And now it seems as if everyone's forgotten about that. I mean, your book is doing a great job reminding people of the heroism of ordinary people, but it's just one book. That's true, you know, and and my motto is better to light one candle than curse the darkness. Um, I think that the on the on the question of essential workers, I think like and this is sort of a pessimistic view actually but when i look back on it you know it was this and you remember march 2020 like you were seeing major corporations running these sort of um like really inspirational ads about how great their employees were and things like that yeah but nothing's um, changed the medical system hasn't changed we still have right. the same problems worse than problems we still have the same profoundly dysfunctional medical system the same unhappy doctors, the same unhappy patients. If anything, everything's more exaggerated now. Right, and that's what I—that's what I—that's why I mean to bring up the ads. Like, I wonder if that moment was mostly rhetorical, even at the time. You know, there's a there's a nurse profiled in the book, Michelle Gonzalez, who again, you know, she had to scrounge for protective equipment. She got sick. Her parents got sick. She couldn't even get a test from her own hospital to find out what was wrong with her. And she on Thanksgiving day 2020 she's better her parents are better she's watching the thanksgiving parade with her parents there's an ad that her hospital system uh runs to say you know thank you healthcare heroes whatever and her reaction is why are you spending this money on an ad in prime time thanksgiving time without again without dealing with the nursing shortage without like okay now we have a stockpile of protective equipment i guess but like we're digging our heels in on 
you know, ad administrators, she says, are digging their heels in on raises for nurses. So I agree with you. Like, I don't think there, there, when I was first writing the proposal, I thought this was one of those like crises as opportunities where we were, we really had a chance to take a look at ourselves and fix some real systemic problems. Um, and I don't know, like, so we it's crises as an opportunity that's turned into a bigger crisis, maybe of the vaccines. You, you had an interesting piece uh, recently in the Atlantic. Uh, you're, you live in Missouri. Uh, Missouri has the next front uh, in the COVID culture war, again, extending the military metaphor. Is this vaccine fight an extension of COVID or is it something separate? That's a, that's a great question, because I mean, can I can I say both? <laughs> I mean, it's you can say whatever you're you're the star. You can say what you can ha have three <laughs> answers if you want. <laughs> it's certainly an extension of COVID, no doubt. But but I think it's become, of course, it's become a tri a marker of of tribe in an extremely unfortunate way. Political um, tribe or cultural, yeah, political tribe, ethnic, uh, color, race. I I think maybe less so ethnic, color, race. But I think, but there is a sense in our political discourse, and and I think masking was also, because masking is visible, right? It, that yeah. that I think became much more of a visible single. Where's even, your mask, Kathy? Right. <laughs> um, I don't even have one in this room. Um, but uh, the vaccine again, the vaccine issue is interesting because I think the political debate now, at least. In Missouri, for example, you actually do have you have conservative politicians out there advocating for vaccine use, but fighting against mandates. So this becomes, you know, this becomes an ideological thing as opposed to a public health thing about personal freedom. And these are these are debates to have. It's also worth noting, I think, um, that in the United States, more people should be vaccinated, but a vast majority of Americans do Report right. I mean, that vaccination map, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of vaccinated people uh, in your yeah. neighborhood in the middle of the country, right? Right. A lot of geographic variation. Um, yeah. And and this this has to do with, I mean, people are people, but this also has to do with communication strategies, public health policies, ease of rolling rolling vaccines out, general skepticism among any given electorate of, you know, here in the Midwest and, and I think in other places in that map, that there are, you know, th there's more of a tradition of skepticism of uh, central government or authority figures trying to tell you what to do and push you around, right? Yeah, so I'm talking with uh, Kathy Gilsonen, uh, the author of The Helpers, uh, an attempt to memorialize the heroism of eight individuals in the COVID crisis in the United States. It's wonderfully written. I think oh, it's going to be uh, one of the most acclaimed books of the year. And, and uh, Kathy is one of America's best, most prolific young writers. She writes for Politico and The Atlantic. Uh, after the break, Kathy, I want to talk more broadly about your take on the Ukraine, how it fits in with the American role in the world, uh, and perhaps how it might even impact um, COVID. So we're going to take a 60-second break. And we'll be back with Kathy Gilson and the author of The Helpers. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching. 
or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Kathy Gilsonen, the author of The Helpers, a, a wonderful book about uh, the heroism uh, of eight individuals in the COVID pandemic, but it's also, as she said in the first half of the book, um, it's, it's a narrative of the failure of the American medical system, a privatized medical system, an unaccountable, rotten, in many ways, corrupt system to deal with something as, as dangerous as, as COVID. Um, Kathy, uh, uh, as I said before the break, I want to talk more broadly about the Ukraine uh, now and perhaps try and connect it. Uh, earlier today, I talked to a couple of uh, academics, a Polish and Ukrainian academic at the Central, Univers Central European University, George Soros's institution in Vienna. And one in particular, the Pole, uh, Maciej Kizalowski, talked about the collective failure of the West when it comes to confronting uh, Putin. You're also a, a journalist. You've, you've done a lot of work on foreign policy, as you suggested, uh, for The Atlantic and Politico. Do you agree with uh, Maciej? Do you think this crisis is partly uh, because of the West's failure, unwillingness to stand up to Putin? Over the last few years, you've written about the Middle East, you've written about China, uh, you've you've also written about the sort of growth in, if you like, pacifism within the American foreign policy establishment. Yeah, I, I think the 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 restrainers would call it the growth of restraint in the American foreign policy establishment, and it's a really interesting. Yeah, and I is... and I and I put that that those are your words. I put them in my own words. The rise of restraint is shaking up Washington. You wrote a piece uh, entitled that it May last year, so I didn't want to put words into your mouth. Oh, no problem. <laughs> that's a, uh, I mean, that, that, that's a really interesting, I mean, it's, it's extremely horrible and unfortunate as is often the case in international affairs, that these are social science experiments playing out 
with real people's lives, right? So there's there's an ongoing debate in the foreign policy establishment in Washington right now um, about whether you know American American efforts to to contain such adversaries as Russia actually end up exacerbating and prolonging. Uh, the conflicts that that Americans would otherwise seek to try to end. Um, that's a debate that's ongoing right now. I think there's no question that um, that, as your guest said earlier, the the West has been slow to wake up to the the threat to what what we in DC used to like to call the international order that Vladimir Putin represents. And it um, wasn't as if it was disguised or secret. Right. Well, and, you know, I, I just did a piece from, um, I, I went and talked to some Ukrainians in Ohio. There, right, and you large, tweeted about that. Yeah, there's a large Ukrainian community in Ohio um, that, you know, like, I think that there is sort of a perception in, in some circles that people in the Midwest and, and in the working class in particular don't care about foreign policy. But these are Americans who, and it's a large community that's forged in part by uh, by people fleeing other crises, right? And, and their descendants, World War One, World War II, Soviet occupation, Nazi occupation, Soviet occupation. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of them and they pointed out that, uh, you know, the rhetoric around, oh my God, is Putin going to invade? Is Putin going to invade? This was before the actual invasion happened. The war has been ongoing in Ukraine for eight years. Right. And 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 because and, and I'm a member of the news media, I, you know, I, I understand this dynamic because it had become kind of routine, you know, like and, and something like. Well, it's easy months. to forget. It comes back to our conversation about covid. We, we have, for better or worse, very bad memories. We, we, we think right. when something's happening, it seems enormous. And then 10 seconds later, it's replaced by something else. And we've instantly forgotten it. Right. And we have and, you know, the United States as a, as a foreign policy actor had other priorities, too. Right. Like that was 2014 when uh, when Putin annexed Crimea and, and started to destabilize the entire eastern half of the country. Um, that was also a time when the rise of ISIS was happening. You know, the right, United- and you've written a lot about this. You wrote a piece um in February 2016, asking what happens if Aleppo falls uh, about the Syrian war. I actually have a show tomorrow with uh, Joby Warwick, a red line, the unraveling of Syria, and which he'll, I think, talk about the Ukraine. To what extent is the American catastrophe in the Middle East, in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, or oh, that's not really the Middle East? How is this all tied to our failure to, to confront Putin in the Ukraine? Well, certainly, in, I mean, you see it very clearly in Syria, um, and and I'm sure Joby Warwick, who's a great journalist, will talk about this more. But you know, Russia's been bombing hospitals, you know, assisting assisting a, a regime that that gases its own people. I mean, right. and, and is- that red line is not those weren't the words of uh, Donald Trump, who's easy to bash. They were, of course, the words of Barack Obama, who's harder to bash, but he's nonetheless responsible. Correct. And I and I think that this is a um, this, again, is a debate in the foreign policy community, how much, you know, credibility you, you saw. You saw people saying, oh, well, you know, Russia and China are looking at this and seeing that that Americans are not, you know, willing to um, <clears throat> willing to back up with force these promises that they make about in the Syria instance, the use of chemical weapons being a red line that would, I believe what Obama's actual words were that they would change his calculus 
um, which they apparently did not because I don't think um, I, I don't think he thought it would actually happen, right? And and similarly, there were a lot of people who were paying very close attention to the Russian buildup on Ukraine's borders um, this in this past go round who didn't actually think it would happen. I mean, and and you see a lot of analysts coming out now saying like. Yeah, no, I I actually just thought that. Uh, right, it's always the- easy, Kathy. In retrospect, but what about your take? You you just had a fascinating piece in uh, Politico magazine on Tucker Carlson and the bet he's made that Americans ultimately don't care about the Ukraine. Do you think that he may have made a an unwise bet, as Putin may have made an unwise bet to invade Ukraine, or is Carlson onto something? Well, I think that there is there, there's no question that um, that there is the U.S. public as a whole, for justifiable reasons, uh, is very hesitant to get militarily involved in other people's conflicts now, right? Um, and I don't think that that is you know there was there was a poll out from AP that said something like. 26% of Americans, I think it was 26, it was 23 or 26 percent of Americans want the U.S. to be very involved in the Ukrainian crisis. On the other hand, polls are kind of all over the place on this. There's another poll that shows um, that shows that more than half of Americans, you know, believe Russians should be sanctioned, Russia should be sanctioned right, and for this. Foreign policy designed by polls are inevitably going to Fuck the country up, right? Absolutely, but the point is that whether whether Tucker Carlson is responding to a real force in American life, I think I think he absolutely is. I think Americans as a whole, though, and this this is an indictment of less of Americans, I think, than of the foreign policy community, are confused about what this really means. So while even while you have more than half of Americans saying, according to this YouGov poll from a couple of weeks ago, you know Russia should be sanctioned, Russia is an enemy of the United States. Uh, we should reinforce NATO countries. They also, like a lot of them can't name whether or not Ukraine is an ally or an enemy of the United States. So this is not, you know, this is not an issue that is, that is close to the hearts of a lot of Americans. Do you think that the Ukraine might represent uh, the beginning of American foreign policy being central again in political debates? I could see Trump or a Trump-like Republican candidate taking on Biden or Harris in in the debates and them arguing about the value of being involved in Ukraine. Do you think this Trumpian isolationism uh, could become the main plank of Republican foreign policy in, in the 20s? I, th- I think that there, I, I think it's a possibility, but I don't think it's an inevitability because what, what you're also seeing, you know, it, it's absolutely true that Tucker Carlson is a, is a leading commentator on the right. And uh, you may not like him, but he's a smart guy. He's not just saying these things f- for the sake of it. He's obviously thought right. it very carefully through and he's making a bet. The thing that is notable and we'll see what happen, you know, what what kind of uh politicians get get elected in this midterm year. The thing that is notable on the GOP at least among elected officials right now is there's near consensus um that that the united states should be backing ukraine this is this is mostly a bar- bipartisan issue and to the extent that there are divisions within congress over this between democrats and republicans it tends to be republicans who want to sanction harder faster stronger you know it, it was coming from the right uh the criticism of of biden's handling of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline um 
you know, they were arguing for sanctions, which Biden didn't want to do. So it's not I, I don't think it's a clear cut. I don't I don't think we can say right now that the GOP is, quote unquote, increasingly isolationist because the people actually serving in office are not. Um, but there are candidates that reflect that view. Um, and and it and, you know, it is a strain in public opinion. And so we'll see in in at the end of the year what kind of what kind of Congress we end up with next. My guess is there are two losers in this Ukrainian thing, the United States and Russia, and of course, one winner, and they seem to be winning all the time these days, the Chinese. You wrote uh, an interesting piece in The Atlantic uh, last year, or a couple of years ago, about how China is planning to win back the world. The headline in the FT today is that China now is ready to play a role in the Ukrainian ceasefire. Could this Ukrainian crisis be China's opportunity to really emerge as the critical global power, certainly a broker between the United States and Russia? I, I think, again, I'd say we'll see. They they have been acting more and more like a superpower. I don't know that- Well, they are a superpower, Kathy. Yeah, and they're- like and they're or taking, not. And they're taking responsibility for it, right? I mean, there was, they're, they're very engaged uh, in a way that we haven't seen before um, in international institutions and in global affairs. Um, you know, they're no longer biding their time and hiding their strength, right? We see it. We see it. Um, I <laughs> I mean, I, I will be interested to see if they can play a productive role in, in negotiating these ceasefires. Obviously, China has its own designs on, uh, on territory that the United States considers free and democratic and independent. So, you know, th- th- that is, and again, this is among the commentariat, you're seeing a lot of, well, China's watching this and they're going to they're going to make a move on Taiwan in the not too different distant future. And are we ready? Um, I would add to your list of losers in, in this crisis, Europe. The, the Ukrainians. I mean, uh, yeah, to put it my way, one of the, the people we talked to earlier was a, a woman teaching at Central University from the Ukraine. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, I mean I'm not trying to minimize this. No, 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 um, I know you're not. I, I think that... Um, this is, uh, you know, it's all very well for us, you and I, to be talking about this. But meanwhile, as we speak, people are, are dying, suffering, a country's being bombed. So relatively defenseless country. I want to end, Kathy. I mean, we, we, we talked, um, you, you're on the show to talk about uh, COVID and the American response, these eight heroes in the context of a sort of structural crisis of American medicine and politics and perhaps culture. When historians write the history of the 21st century, do you think COVID might be seen as the moment when in the sort of systematic credibility of the system, the the credibility of of world systems, that the Chinese model replaced the American model? The American model certainly hasn't worked with COVID. The, The Chinese model is, of course, debatable. The pandemic began in China. How are we going to think back? on the different responses and experiences in China and the United States to COVID? I think that there is, at least in the United States, and you're seeing this now, and you saw this during the pandemic, and I think in in Western countries, there remains no appetite for Chinese-style governance. (laughs) It's all very well and good for the Chinese, but but you're seeing, I mean, almost from the beginning, and public health or no, there there is such an allergy in the United States and in democracies in the West to broad sweeping emergency government powers. It is very, very difficult to govern that way um, for people who are used to freedom. So I don't, I, I see the Chinese model 
as appealing to some. And I think that the Chinese are prepared to force it on others to whom it's not appealing. But I don't, I, I, I like to think that, uh, you know, we're, I, I think the State of the Union is probably going to be about some of this tonight, you know, that we're, we're in a world of competition between democracy and, and authoritarianism. But, you know, to, to my mind, as a, as a kid in America, like democracy wins every time, like, it's the worst system except for all the others, right? I think that remains true. As Winston Churchill so famously said. Right. Uh, so Kathy Gilson and you, um, speaking from St. Louis, Missouri, the heart of the country, the most American perhaps of all American cities, you remain an American optimist. I think you reflected that in some tweets you made recently, which is, of course, extremely healthy. I want to congratulate you on this wonderful new book, uh, The you. Helpers, Profiles from the Front Lines of the Pandemic. If you want to be cheered up and inspired, Kathy Gilson's new book is essential reading, and it's wonderfully written by, as I said, one of America's uh, top, most prolific young journalists. Uh, Kathy, in addition to your new book on March 1, 2022, what else should people be reading? Um, can I can I offer two? As long as it's not the plague. Okay. <laughs> no, no, I had to think of another one. Uh, I think for understanding what's happening in Ukraine right now um, and and why Putin is doing what he's doing, I would recommend Fiona Hill's Mr. Putin, which which she wrote with a Yeah, Fiona was on the show, but on her her, her, her less... And we actually had Angela Stent from Brookings, who's a... Amazing. Who's a colleague of, uh, of, of Hill. But yeah, that was that's a good one. So Mr. Putin, and if you if you don't have time to read the whole thing, there's there's an excerpt in the Atlantic which I which I edited um, <clears throat> from 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 when it came out a few years ago. Um, and right now I'm rereading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the third or fourth time um, sure. by Douglas Adams, one of the great uh, one of the great British humorists in the mold of P.G. Woodhouse, who's also one of my favorites. And I just learned that Douglas Adams was 31 when he wrote it. So. That makes me feel. <laughs> makes us all feel terrible, Kathy. But still, genius <laughs> yeah. is rare. Um, well, Kathy, Kathy Gilson, and the author of The Helpers, a wonderful conversation. Finally, Kathy, I ask this of all my guests: Who's in charge, Kathy Gilson, and author of The Helpers? Who runs the world? I think Beyonce would say girls, and I would probably say chaos tempered by love. <laughs> <laughs> 